0: We turn this morning to Philippians chapter three. Have your Bible. Would you turn there? Philippians chapter three, verses one through eleven. The spiritual accountant. Philippians three, verses one through eleven. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false. Circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that we can come and worship you and praise you. And Lord Jesus, there is no greater thing than to know you, to have a relationship with you, to walk with you, and to have fellowship with you on a day by day basis. And Father, I pray that you would show us that all-surpassing value today of knowing You. Father, teach us. We pray as we open Your Word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. When I went to college starting in 1976, a long time ago, I was planning on being an accounting major. I never did actually take an accounting class because God had other plans me, So you probably wouldn't want me to be the accountant for your business because I might not do the best job. But I understand the importance of accounting because a good accountant can protect you from financial decisions that may cost you dearly. And I can say that from experience. I remember when I first started in ministry... I didn't realize that a pastor's taxes, income taxes is done quite a bit different than, um, dare I say, normal people. I don't know if that's the way to put it. but Anyhow, so the the church I served, there was an uh, accountant right next door. I thought, great, I'll just go over and I'll give him the information and he'll save me the money that I deserve to be saved and so forth. And that did not happen. And a few years down the road, I remember when there was a gathering of pastors and they were talking about a designated housing allowance and stuff like that. And I was thinking, now, what is that? And the more they explained to me, the more I realized, oh, I've been paying extra money in income taxes for years. This accountant really didn't know how to figure a pastor's taxes. The Apostle Paul is like a spiritual accountant in this passage of Scripture. Notice all the words, the, the accounting words that he uses. Gain, loss, value, count. Verses 7 and 8, we find those words used nine times. I think I counted right. Maybe that's why I'm not an accountant. But whatever things were gain to me... Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, you see why I call this the spiritual accountant? These are accounting terms. And Paul is describing... The spiritual accounting that he went through. And he learned some important things about the value of spiritual gain and the danger of spiritual loss. And We would do well to hear what, what he has to say. So I've got two points today. I can have four the next Sunday. First of all, the great danger of spiritual loss. Spiritual loss. Notice how Paul begins this passage by telling the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. But he immediately follows that with saying, beware. Beware of those who would take your joy away. Notice verse 1. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Then he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Now, when you see that word beware, that should be like flashing red lights, right? There is something I'm about to say, Paul says, that you need to watch out for. There is danger here. And he's obviously expressing this as a serious concern because he uses the word beware three times in a row. Beware, beware, beware. And when you see repetition in Scripture, that is for the sake of emphasis. I am emphasizing something important here. There were many people in Paul's day who needed this warning because they were trying to approach God on the basis of their own good works. Like many today, they thought that they could somehow earn God's favor. If I'm just good enough, if I do enough good things, if I live as a good citizen and husband or wife or whatever, as if there's kind of these scales in heaven, you know, the good and the bad. And if the good outweighs the bad, then God will say, you know what? You're in. You're in. The problem with that way of thinking is that it is a blatant rejection of God's plan of salvation. What is God's plan of salvation? It is found in Jesus. God sent His Son Jesus to be our Savior. And if we think that we can come to God any other way than through Jesus, that is a blatant rejection of God's plan for us to be saved. As if we are fine without Jesus, our good works are enough. Paul calls such teachers dogs and evil workers. And when he uses the term dogs here, we probably need to just understand that he's not talking about those cute little puppies, those cute dogs that you have in your home. We had one of those, Molly Oh, She didn't always obey, but she was cute. Right. many times we say, Oh, look at her. Isn't that cute? Oh, she's so wonderful. Kent Hughes in his commentary says, Frankly, Paul's warning, beware of the dogs would hurt my dog's feelings. If this could be translated into canine, because my dog has never done anything wrong. Daisy doesn't bark. She doesn't beg. She doesn't steal. All she does is flash a panting smile as she tries to figure out what I want her to do. Daisy is, well, perfect. he said. The dogs that Paul is referring to here are not those kind of dogs. These were the wild dogs. They roamed the streets, sometimes attacking people. And they are like the dogs that one of my... Daughters recently came across. She was going into this little wooded area to find a stick or some sticks for some kind of a school project or kids club project or whatever it was. Three dogs came at her. And they were surrounding her, teeth exposed, hair on the back of, you know, sticking up. 20 minutes. Never cell phone with her, couldn't do nothing. She was pretty scared for those twenty minutes. That's the kind of dogs that Paul is talking about here. These false teachers were dangerous. They spewed out that hopeless doctrine that man could be saved by his own good works. And that is dangerous teaching. Warren Wordsby says Paul is not just using names. He is comparing these false teachers to the dirty scavengers so contemptible to decent people. Like those dogs, these Judaizers snapped at Paul's heels and followed him from place to place, barking their false doctrines. They were troublemakers and carriers of dangerous infection. Do you get the picture? These false teachers are dangerous animals. They are dogs. And you better beware. You better watch out. Because they will lead you to great spiritual danger. Now what is interesting about this is that Paul used the word dogs. Normally he would use the word dogs to describe Gentiles. That's what the Jews called the Gentiles because they didn't follow all of the dietary laws. They weren't circumcised. And they were seen as a danger to Judaism. But guess what? Paul isn't calling the Gentiles dogs here. He's calling the Judaizers dogs. One author says the irony for the Judaizers was that all their attention to the works of the law made them evil workers and therefore spiritual Gentiles or dogs. So anybody who had Jewish background who heard what Paul is saying here, they would have been taken back. Are you kidding me? You are calling us dogs? We are not dogs. They are dogs. Paul says, oh no, no. Those of you who bring that kind of teaching that you don't need Jesus, that you got your own good works, evil workers. False circumcision. Dogs, beware of them. Paul had an obvious reason for warning the believers about this. And he gives that reason at the end of verse 1. He says, To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is, Paul says, a safeguard for you. So he must have written something to them prior to this or else teaching them when he was with them. And he he says, you know what? I need to remind you again. It's no trouble for me to remind you of this again, and it is a safeguard for you. It is for your protection that you hear these things. He wants to guard them from spiritual danger. And they should be thankful that he cared enough for them that he would warn them of spiritual danger. Let me ask you, are you thankful for those who warn you of spiritual danger? You ought to be. You ought to be grateful that someone would warn you if you are heading down a path of spiritual danger instead of getting upset with them. You ought to be thankful for them. Wanting to spare you of great trouble. Many people don't want that. Many people don't want to be told that they are in spiritual danger. And if you are so bold as to tell them, then you are their enemy and you will pay for it. Let me give you an example. In the life of Lot in Genesis 19, before they lay down the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind them and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. What did they say? Stand aside, they said. This one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Sound familiar? And now we will treat you worse than them. That's like it was written in our day today, isn't it? How many times have you heard someone say to a believer, who are you to judge? Oh, you, you you're so judgmental. And if you are that kind of person, we you're gonna pay for it. We will treat you worse. If you tell us that we are wrong, we will hate you. We will cancel you, huh? We will persecute you. We will make it hard for you in any way that we can. We aren't the problem. You are. That's the culture we live in today, isn't it? Anybody who would stand for biblical truth, the world says, we're not the problem. You are. You are. Paul must have gotten a negative response from the people in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 4 verse 16, he said, So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Quite a question to ponder, huh? So if I am one who is going to tell you the truth, am I your enemy? Paul says. It's like they didn't want to hear the truth. I hope you're not like that where you don't want to hear the truth. The truth, because you need to know the truth. The truth sets us free, right? We don't want to live in deception. We want to hear what is what is true. The people of Watton, England, called Roland Hill a madman. Because he warned people about spiritual danger. And here's what he said. He said, while I passed along the road, I saw a gravel pit cave in. Buried three men alive. He said, I hastened to the rescue. I shouted for help until they heard me in the town a mile away. No one called me a madman then. But when when I see destruction about to fall on sinful men, And entomb them in the eternal mass of woe, and I cry aloud, if perchance they may behold their danger and escape. They say, I'm beside myself. I'm crazy. Perhaps I am, he said.
1: But oh, that
0: all God's children might be thus fired with desire to save their fellows. Get the picture. If I cry out loud because someone's getting buried alive in the ground, no problem. But if I cry aloud and warn people of spiritual danger, what a madman, what a fool. Who do you think you are? Paul was not afraid to be called any name in the book because he was willing to warn people. He says to these Philippians, You better beware. Beware. Now, if anybody knew a thing about the danger that Paul is describing here, Paul did, because he was one of them, wasn't he? He was one of them that he is telling the Philippians to beware of, because he was part of the false circumcision. He was an evildoer. He was not proclaiming the truth. He was trying to destroy the church. So he knew what what that was all about. But when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, He realized that the things that he was trusting in could not save him. And he wanted to warn others of that very fact. That all of these things that he was doing and had done was not going to give him eternal life. And when he discovered that it's only Jesus, he was warning people that there's great spiritual loss when you don't know Jesus. Do you realize that only Jesus can save you? He's your only hope. Nothing you do. No good works. Nothing you can bring to God. And He would say, "Wow, I want you on my team, so." It, it does not work that way. And beware of anyone who would say that, even if they say faith, plus works. Mix them together. Like one lady said, you know, what I believe is that getting to heaven is like being in a rowboat. One oar is faith. The other one is works. Warren Worsby was told that one time. He said, the only thing wrong with your illustration is you don't get to heaven in a rowboat. It's only Jesus. So There's the warning. The great Value, or the great danger of, of spiritual loss. But then Paul moves on to the great value of spiritual gain. Now think of it, before he met Jesus, Paul was pretty impressed with his religious commitment. Compared to others who believed as he did, Paul had a significant list of religious accomplishments that he counted pretty special. <laughs> Look at verse 4. If anyone else has a mind... To put confidence in the flesh. Things I'm doing and so forth. I, I far more. He gives this list. Circumcised the eighth day, like Scripture talks about, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Very few Jews, if any, could... Could make the claim that Paul did. On a scale of 1 to 10, I think Paul would have put himself at 11. Right? I mean, he thought he just, you know, reason for boasting? Look at me. Look at me. But notice how Paul changed his view of these things that he was so proud of when he met Jesus. Verse 7 But whatever things were gain to me those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Now, many of the things that Paul thought were gained to him didn't become lost to him because they were bad things. Certainly nothing bad about being a a circumcised Jew from the tribe of, of Benjamin. But being a Jew didn't automatically save him. Being circumcised didn't save him. Being from the tribe of Benjamin didn't save him. Trying to keep the law didn't save him. Only Jesus and Jesus alone could save him. Kent Hughes says, Paul's former accomplishments had become abhorrent to him not because they were bad or they were not, but because they kept him from Jesus. Anything that keeps you from Jesus must be set aside. It isn't worth it. Anything that keeps you from Jesus ought to be considered loss for his sake. So if Jesus was going to save Paul, he had to come to God empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring, right? As the hymn writer says, simply to the cross I cling. He needed to see that everything he offered to God to earn his favor was worthless and he uses a very graphic word rubbish i don't know what comes to your mind when you heard the word when you hear the word rubbish but it carries the idea of of it can be translated waste dung manure or excrement well, that's a pretty pretty strong word and paul says it is Rubbish, because as sinners, anything we offer to God to merit His favor is unacceptable. It's like rubbish. Isaiah the prophet says, all of our deeds, our good deeds are filthy rags in the sight of God. That's why Paul needed to lay aside everything he was trusting in so he could embrace Jesus alone. He had to count it all as loss. There was a poor man and a rich man who attended the same service and came under great conviction of, of, of sin. And the poor man rejoiced in the good news immediately, and the rich man For a long time, he seemed to be just in in distress, almost despair. And finally, he embraced the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Well, sometime later they met. And the rich man said, how is it that I should be so long under conviction and you found peace at once? The poor man said, let me tell you. He said, there comes along a rich prince. He proposes to give you a new coat. And you look at yours and you say, I don't know, my coat looks pretty good. We'll do it a little longer. And then he offers me a new coat. I look at my old coat. I say, this is good for nothing. And accept the beautiful garment. So it is with salvation. He said, you tried to keep your own righteousness. You won't give it up. But I knew that I had none. So I was glad at once to receive the righteousness of God. There's the difference. There are people who think they have some righteousness to offer God. We have none. We have none. We have just rubbish. And we come then to Jesus with hands empty, receiving that beautiful, glorious gift of of salvation. And that's the place that Paul finally came to in his life. He compared what he had apart from Jesus nothing to what we have in Jesus, everything. And he concluded that having Jesus was of much greater value. Verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of, what? The surpassing value. Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's the, there's the spiritual accountant. He said, I look at what I had apart from Jesus and compare it what I have in Jesus. There is no comparison. In fact, the word translated surpassing value refers to something that is of incomparable worth. Nothing you can compare to the value of knowing Jesus, it is priceless. What are some of the priceless things that Paul gained in knowing Jesus? He gained a righteousness that saved him. Verse 9, Paul says that his desire was that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, righteousness that could not save him, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, On the basis of faith. So there's the difference. Not trying to present to God some kind of righteousness that would please Him, but receiving from God the righteousness that He offers to us in Jesus. Not me trying to to climb my way to God, but God reaching down to me on the cross and offering to me the perfect righteousness. Of Jesus. The kind of righteousness you need. The righteousness of Jesus. Now think of it. Paul spent many years of his life trying to achieve a righteousness that's based on the law. John MacArthur says that righteousness, one of self-effort, external morality, religious ritual, and moral works, all produced by the flesh, had been a crushing unbearable burden that's what trying to be saved by the law becomes an unbearable burden because you cannot keep it you fail and will continue to fail and paul describes the result of that self effort trying to keep the law romans chapter 3 verse 19 he says now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So when you make, try to make that effort that you're going to obey the law of God and that's not going to save you, that law crushes you. It silences you. You have no, no defense. And it prepares you For Jesus, because it causes you to realize that apart from Him, we are hopeless. Just think of that day when this Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as the Apostle Paul, met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus confronted him, knocked him to the ground. He was blinded for a time. And he came to understand that the righteousness that he needed was a gift of God. The perfect righteousness of Jesus. To put it in accounting terms, God credited to Paul's bankrupt account the righteousness of Jesus. He had none. But God placed into his account the righteousness of Jesus. Luther's experience was very similar to this. He said, as a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. I hated the word righteousness of God because I had been taught to understand it as active righteousness according to which God is righteous and punishes sinners. As Luther studied Romans 1.17, he said, Then finally God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely by faith. And he says, This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. When he finally realized that the righteousness of God is a gift given to by faith to those who come to Him with nothing to offer. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul says, I have a righteousness that saves me. The righteousness of Christ. And then he says, he gained in Jesus a power that transformed Him. A power that changed Him. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. In verse 10, Paul says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Jesus has the power to raise us from spiritual death to spiritual life. By nature, we are spiritually dead. We are born into this world spiritually dead. We need to be born again. We need to be raised to spiritual life. And because Jesus has conquered death and was raised to life again, he raises us to spiritual life. Ephesians 2. Paul was explaining in that chapter that we are spiritually dead because of our sin. But then you come to verse 4 and you have this beautiful phrase but God, <laughs> but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together
1: with Christ.
0: That's what we need to be made spiritually alive in Jesus. There's no other way. And that's why Paul says, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord is because He raises us to spiritual life and one day He will raise our dead bodies to life. Verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you need to do some spiritual accounting today? You need to examine your spiritual bank account if you want to use that phrase. Apart from Jesus, you aren't just poor. You're bankrupt. You're bankrupt. You've got nothing to offer God. Nothing. But in Jesus, you have everything. Everything you need because He credits your account with His righteousness. By faith, He gives you as a gift a righteousness you could never achieve. Can you think of anything greater than knowing Jesus? There's nothing greater. Nothing greater in all the world than knowing Jesus. Graham Kendrick has written a song based on what Paul writes here. All I once held dear, built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss. Spent and worthless now compared to this. What? Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. Some of you are probably singing that in your heart, aren't you? Now my heart's desire is to know you more. To be found in you and known as yours. To possess by faith what I could not earn. All-surpassing gift of righteousness. Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy. My righteousness. And I love you Lord. That's your testimony today? You say, of Jesus, you're my joy. You're the best. You're my righteousness. and I love you, Lord. I pray that's your testimony. That you have passed from spiritual death and danger to spiritual life in Jesus. There is no greater thing. Father, thank you for Jesus, for his life, his death, his resurrection. Thank you that he offers to us today spiritual life, nothing greater than knowing him, knowing we're forgiven and cleansed and have that eternal hope in you, Lord. I pray if there's someone listening to this message today, who has been trying to earn in some way your forgiveness and and eternal life, Would you reveal to them, Lord Jesus, that there is only one hope, only one way, and you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Jesus,
1: for all that you've
0: done for us. We pray in your name. Amen. I invite
1: you to stand as we close this morning.
0: God, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. That's our hope. In Him and in Him alone. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.